Amen. Good morning. Good to be with you. We are in week four of our topical series on our purpose, which is to love Jesus, know truth, serve others, and reach people. And as we've talked about these calls, we've talked about the identities that go along with them. We have identities as the people of God, and they are to be worshipers, to love Jesus and love him supremely. They're to be disciples. In terms of knowing truth, we want to grow in our knowledge of the truth. The disciple is merely a learner. And we're called to serve others. It's called to be servants. And even more than that, called to be a family who is called to serve one another. And then this week, we see that we're called to be missionaries. We're called to reach people. Jesus, before he was ascended, told his people that they would receive the spirits and they would be his witnesses. So if you believed in Jesus Christ, you have received the Spirit, and you are called not just to go out and witness on occasion, but to be witnesses of the resurrected Christ. So we are missionaries as believers. What is the, don't say it out loud, but what's the first word you think of when you hear the word missionary? I often ask that in smaller group contexts, and it's almost always Africa. Of all the places it could be, everyone, the first word association that goes to the missionary is Africa. But biblically speaking, every single believer in Jesus Christ is a missionary, is one who is sent. All believers are sent. John chapter 20, Jesus told his disciples, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. So every single Christian is sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are Sent by him to be his ambassadors. And if you live here in Abilene, guess where you're sent to? At least currently, Abilene, Texas is your mission field. God has you here for him. God has you at your workplace for him. God has you in your neighborhood for him. One could debate whether or not America really ever was a Christian nation. It kind of depends on how you define Christian. What's pretty hard to debate nowadays is that it is no longer if it ever was. Just turn on the news. Increasingly, we see that we are now in what many are calling a post Christian nation. Here's how one author describes what he means. He, he describes it in terms of seven transitions that mark the shift from a Judeo-Christian culture to a post-Christian culture. And I think these were helpful, so I want to share them with you. It means that we as believers are moved from the center to the margins. There was a time in American culture where the church and Christianity was fairly central. Increasingly, it is moving to the margins. We are being moved from majority to minority. It's a place when the Christians probably were a majority, maybe still are, at least in terms of name, nominal, but increasingly a minority. And moved from being settlers, where we felt settled and felt at home, to being sojourners, where we no longer feel at home here. Moved from being privileged as the Christian faith to a plurality, where we are just one faith among many. Move from kind of having control, that's probably too strong of a word, but certainly being very influential now just to being witness. So the way that we now influence isn't by control, it's just through our witness. And then finally, from being from maintenance, status quo, to mission, and then from institution to movements. I think those are helpful for where, if we're not there now, I think we're headed there. I think you can sort of look at Europe and see how things are there. That's coming to America. I think Abilene, Texas may be a little later, a few years behind the movement, but it's coming. I think it's coming. And so we're no longer accepted like we used to be, no longer respected. That day's over in many places in the country. Now, this poses all sorts of challenges. 
I think the hardest part is the challenges it will pose in terms of morality with our kids and our grandkids. But there's also silver lining in the cloud, and that is that it will purify the church. And the Lord knows the church needs purification in America, so that's the good news. You'll have those that are just only in it for the benefits or the social advantages. They're going to stop coming when it becomes harder and harder. And that will be a good thing for the purity of the church. It will be challenging, but at the end of the day, it will be good. But the main thing that I see the silver lining is that we will begin to see as the church in America, we will see our context as the mission field that it is. And we will live as sent people, and we will live as witnesses, and we will live in order to reach people. I want us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and look at five ways of understanding that lead us to be about the business of reaching others. So if you've got a Bible, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll read 11 to 21. <clears throat> Verse 11, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the hearts. If we are out of our minds, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to see five five ways our understanding has changed that will help us to reach people, and that is our motives, our understanding of people, our understanding of God's work in the world, our understanding of the role he's given us, and finally our understanding of the work of Christ on our behalf. So the first change is that our motives are changed. Our motives now move us to reach people. And here in this passage, we have two motives. One is the fear of the Lord, and the other is the love of Christ. First, the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 5. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord We try to persuade others. Since we know the fear of the Lord, we seek to persuade others because we know what the fear of the Lord is. That's the reason we are now going to try to persuade other people. We fear him. We take him seriously. He is holy. 
We are sinful. So as there is a right sense of reverence before him. Just a couple of verses early. In fact, the verse before, chapter 5, verse 10, we read this. We must all, believers too, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We live in light of that day. We keep that day, the judgment seat of Christ, in mind with all we do. We fear him. There's a right sense of reverence before him. And I think we as a church and culture have, have sort of overreacted because a generation or two ago, it was all about what? Fire and brimstone. We all know, you know, maybe you had a grandpa or the grandpa's church, and that was what they're known for, especially among Baptists. Fire and brimstone, Turner burn type messages. And then now I think the pendulum has swung, though, now. And so now we dare not talk about judgment. We dare not talk about repentance. We just paint this picture of God as this divine sky fairy, this divine teddy bear who wouldn't dare harm a a flea. And we've lost the biblical picture of who God is because we've overreacted maybe to a previous generation's emphasis. But we have to understand that the reality of the judgment of God is on every other page of the Bible. Listen to the way Psalm 711 describes God in this manner. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. If a person doesn't relent, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. The fear of the Lord should move us. The Proverbs say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If we don't have this right, we won't have anything right. Paul Tripp says that to fear the Lord means that we will carry around with us such a deep awareness and awe, a reverence for the power and holiness and wisdom and grace of God that we wouldn't think of doing anything other than living for him and living for his glory. Fearing the Lord means that there's this worshipful awe, and that is the single and unchallenged motivator of all that we think, all that we desire, all that we say, and all that we do. The Lord is holy, and he is to be feared. He will come in judgment, and this is part of the reason why we ought to seek to persuade people. The judgment of God is coming. But not only the judgment of God, the other motive is the love of God shown through Christ. Look at verse 14. For Christ's love, by the way, the love of God and the judgment of God are not not at odds. In fact, they meet in the cross of Christ. So Christ's love compels us because we we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. His love compels us. It sends us out, and his love is demonstrated in the cross. That's why he goes on to say that one died for all. He died for us. He died in our place. Because of our sin, we deserve condemnation, but in grace, he takes our place. Christ bears the penalty we deserve. He is our substitute, which is why we sing about the deep love of the Father. Listen to these lyrics. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. 
Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought us life and we know that it is finished. How deep the Father's love for us. And this love compels us, or at least it should. When we know ourselves to be wretches that we are, we are sinful. Read the Bible to learn that. Culture won't tell us that, but Scripture will tell us that on every page. And when we know ourselves to be the rebels that we are, and yet God in grace sends his son to die in our place and absorb the punishment that you and I deserve, when we get that, first we've got to get it here, but it's got to move from here to here. And when we get that, of course, we are compelled. We're blown away that we could become a treasure when we were once wretches. We never get over it. It changes everything, and we become compelled so that we can't help but speak of Jesus and what he's done for us. Redeeming love has been our theme, and it will be until we die. So we become convinced that he died for all so that those who live, verse 15 says, would no longer live for themselves. This goes back to last week. Remember the the DNA of sin is self-centeredness? So one definition is being curved in on the self. Well, one of the reasons that Jesus died, according to this verse, is to form a people who no longer live for themselves. To form a people that are no longer self-centered. All of our inner narcissists, which we all have him, but that narcissist was crucified to the cross outside of Jerusalem. He died that we would no longer live for us, but that we would live for him and live for others. So the motive to reach others is the fear of God and the love of Christ. Second thing is our understanding of people should move us to be about reaching others. Look at verse 16. So from now on, now that we know the Lord, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Now that we know Christ, from now on, we don't regard people the same. When we become converted, it changes how we view people, at least it ought to. And so we no longer view people according to the flesh, which is the opposite of according to the spirits. We don't view them as just people that are only there to meet my needs, people that are only a means to an end. No, we abandon our old values, which affects how we view other people. Instead, we view them as made in the image of God, and therefore to be treated with dignity, all humans. We view them as broken by sin, just like us. And we see that that's the fundamental problem of all people. The fundamental problem is sin. And they need Christ, just like us. And we begin to view them as people who will live forever. Everyone will live for eternity. And we will view them as either living with Christ for eternity or apart from Christ for eternity. There are really only two classes of people in the world. All the things that we say matters, like where you're from or what color your skin is or how much is in your bank account, the Lord cares nothing about any of that and neither should we. There are two classes of people in this world. They are either in Christ, and that's what our verse says, if anyone is in Christ or they're in Adam. All people are either in Christ or or in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so we no longer view people the way we used to. 
We don't view people from a worldly point of view in accordance with the standards and values that derive from living as if physical life in this world is all there is. We don't, we don't see people that way anymore. Christ has given us new lenses to put on, and so everything is different. We view everything and every person differently because this verse says everything is different. I love the way the NIV translates this verse. You have to do something. You have to add a little bit of English in this verse because it literally just says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. That's all it says. So you could say, if anyone's in Christ, new creation. What most translations do is they individualize it. And they'll add, he is, and then they'll translate creation as creature. And so most translations say, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. Problem is, the word creature never refers to individuals in Paul's writing. It's always to creation. So this translation is right. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Old things have passed away. New things are here. The kingdom has come. Even in the context, we see that. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. I have an allusion to the first creation. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1 and 2, he made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the, of the glory of God displayed in the face of Christ. So if anyone is in Christ, everything is different. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The kingdom is here. Everything has changed. Jesus has yanked God's future into the present when he was raised from the dead and nothing remains the same after the empty tomb. We're made new. We're born again. I love the image. It's a fresh start, given new life. And here we see that this new life is not to be about us and our kingdom of comfort. Instead, it's about reaching people and living for Christ. In Christ, our whole selves are totally restructured. And now all of our thinking and all of our feeling and all of our willing and all of our acting, it's focused on him and his glory. We no longer view people from a worldly perspective, though we once did. And we even used to view Christ that way. We saw Christ as just according to the flesh. Maybe we thought he didn't even exist. Or maybe he was there, but he was totally irrelevant to my life. Or maybe he was there and he was there when I need him. But when you become a true believer and truly born again, he goes from being irrelevant to being your everything. He becomes your treasure. And so we no longer view him according to the flesh either. God has opened our hearts. He's taken the blinders off our eyes, and now he is our all-consuming passion. So our understanding of people should move us, but thirdly, our understanding of God's work in the world should move us to reach others. Look at verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ And gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. God's work in the world is reconciling sinful humanity to himself. That's really the message of the whole Bible. Genesis to Revelation. God pursuing rebellious creatures and making them right. And, of course, reconciliation assumes ruptured relationships, doesn't it? You only need reconciliation when there's a problem, and the problem is that our sins have separated us from a holy God. Here's how the prophet Isaiah puts it in chapter 59. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. 
Again, our fundamental problem is sin. Our biggest need is reconciliation with a holy God. Romans 5 says that we are enemies of God apart from Christ. The good news is he's in the business of reconciling enemies and turning them into friends through the gospel. He's in the business of taking care of our sin problem through the cross. And so knowing this should help us to get involved. In fact, the fourth reason is that our understanding of our role should move us because he's given us a part to play. Look again at verse 19. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God's at work reconciling people and he's given us a role to play. He has given us, the church, his people, this message of reconciliation and he has entrusted it to us. Notice that, that's really important. God has entrusted to the church words. It's a message, but it's a message that comes with power. And so when we tell this message with all of our failings and fumblings, the power of God goes to work and saves people through the message about Jesus Christ. That's how all of us became believers. We heard those words somewhere, and all of a sudden, we may have heard them many times, but all of a sudden, those words became power. And that's what Romans 1, chapter 6, 1, 16 and 17 says. It is this gospel message that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Isn't that freeing? That our role in this, he's given us this message. He's entrusted us with this message. He's stewarded us with this message. And all we have to do is be faithful to it. And he saves people through this message. In this sense, we've never had an unsuccessful evangelism attempt. We've done our part if we've been faithful to the gospel message, regardless of the results. God has entrusted us with the ministry of the word, not the results. The results are up to him, which is why we read that some water, some plant, God gives the growth. As we see in verse 18, all this is from God, and he graciously and lovingly gives us the privilege and responsibility to be a part of the way that he's reconciling the world to himself. That's freeing. I love the passage in 2 Corinthians that speaks of us. It says, we have this treasure. And it's speaking of the gospel message. We have this treasure of the gospel message in jars of clay. And we hear that and we probably move on and don't think much about it. But we need to know that jars of clay were the most common, cheapest way to transport anything in that culture. I think the best equivalent today is those plastic sacks you get from the grocery store. God has entrusted this message, this treasure of the gospel to a bunch of plastic grocery bags. (laughs) But notice the verse keeps going. It says, in order to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So he includes us. He's given us a role to play, entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. And it's so important. Our message stands between heaven and hell. Which is why, again, the fear of God should move us. And he says we're ambassadors. 
An ambassador was an authorized representative of some ruler or some king, and he didn't speak on his own authority. The ambassador spoke on behalf of whatever king or ruler sent him. It was not his job to be persuasive. It wasn't his job to change or make the message a little more palatable to the people, to tweak it as he saw fit. No, the goal of the ambassador was to be faithful to the message that the king sent. And that's our responsibility. It's to steward the gospel message. And it says, God, when we do that, God makes his appeal through us. Is that not incredible? As you speak the gospel, God himself will appeal through your weak words. What boldness this ought to give us as the people of God. Our homes should be mission stations, jobs, mission assignments, money, mission ammunition. Our understanding of the role God's privileged privileged us with should move us to be about reaching people. And then fifth and finally, our understanding of the work of Christ should move us to be about reaching people. Look at verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a glorious verse. If you don't have this verse memorized, this would be the week to take care of that problem. He says, for our sake, for us. Here again, we have the love of God. He acted for us in our behalf. For our sake, he put his son forward to be sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. That is, he treated his sinless son as if he were guilty of all the sins of all his people even though he was guilty of none. Romans 8 says he was put forward as a sin offering. Look again at verse 19. They're in the middle. Not counting people's sin against them. Though that's exactly what we deserve, who does he count our sin against? His innocent son on the cross. Our sin is not counted to us, but it's counted to him. He made him to be sin who had no sin. There's only ever been one person who had no sin, and that is Jesus Christ. Hebrews says he was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. It wasn't his sin that took him to the cross. Remember those lyrics? Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed to hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life, I know that it is finished. He had no sin of his own. It was our sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the goal. That's, that's what other passages in the New Testament speak of as justification, being declared in the right. Our sins forgiven and his perfect life and his righteousness counted to us. It's the heart of the gospel. Our sin Counted to Christ. His righteousness counted to us, sinners though we are. 1 Corinthians 1.30, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who's become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. We see this in Romans chapter 4 as well. Let me read Romans 4.4. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. However, 
to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly. Take note of that. God doesn't justify or save godly people. He only justifies ungodly people, which is all of us. The one who doesn't work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. When we trust Christ, though we are unrighteous, we are credited as righteous, not because of our performance, but because of the performance of King Jesus on our behalf. Verse 6, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And he quotes Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. What should take us right back to our motive? The love of Christ, again, when we know ourselves to be the sinners that we are and we know God's own holiness and righteous standard and we see that through the cross, God has solved our sin problem, how can we keep this message to ourselves? So we should be motivated, motivated by the love of Christ and the fear of God to reach people, motivated by our understanding of people because everything is different. That should move us to love them and the greatest way we can love them is telling them the truth of Jesus. Our understanding of God's work, that he's in the business of reconciling sinful humanity to himself, and our understanding of the fact that he's given us a role to play in all of this. Not because he needs our help, but because he delights to include us. There's a lot of things you could say. There's a lot of ways to do this. Some of you may be called to, you know, go to the college campus, stand on a soapbox and preach. Some of you may be called to go door to door. Some of you may be called to do, go hand out tracts, whatever. Those things are all great and have their place. I think what the main way we need to improve, though, in terms of reaching people is just to keep living our lives, basically how we're living them, but adding a layer, an element of gospel intentionality to everything we do. We all have various rhythms and various patterns of intersection with people. And I think what we really need to do is just be intentional as Christians, viewing ourselves as sent wherever we are. One of my favorite quotes is from a book called Total Church, and it says, Most gospel ministry is ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. And so how would your life look differently if you began to live it with intentionality as an ambassador of Christ Jesus? Viewing yourself, John chapter 20, as sent wherever you go. Laundromat, sent there. Grocery store, sent. Walk in the neighborhood, sent there. Play at the park, sent. Work, sent. School, sent. So may God increasingly give us grace to be a community, a faithful community of worshipers, disciples, family, servants, and missionaries.